Hi, my name is Sue. I'm going to read from Psalm 22, 1 through 5. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Greg. The New Testament reading is found in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and descended from David. This is my good news. This is the reason I'm suffering to the point that I'm in prison like a common criminal. But God's word cannot be imprisoned. This is why I endure everything for the sake of those who are chosen by God so that they too may experience salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is reliable. If we have died together, we will also live together. If we endure, we will also rule together. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are disloyal, though, he stays faithful because he cannot be anything else than what he is. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Grace. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Elima, Sabachthanim, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Palm Sunday is the um, conclusion here of our season of Lent, or rather the tail end of it, because it's the beginning of Holy Week. And as Evan alluded to earlier this morning, probably for a lot of us, this is all kind of a new thing, marking time by the life of Christ, reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us. And it's a way of helping us prepare for Easter, but it's also a way of helping us uh, remember and relive and reenact it. And so this year during Lent, we've been in this series called Lament. And lament is not one of those things we talk about very often in church. But if we're honest, it is true to our experience of life. There are so many situations that we feel that break our heart, that crush us. And if we don't talk about how lament is a, a, a one of the ways that we relate to God, if we don't talk about that in church, then I think we might get the impression along the way that God only wants to hear the good stuff, that God is the sunny, cheerful, ever optimist, and that when you're feeling blue about life, he doesn't, there's no room for you, and that if, if you're going through something hard or heartbreaking, that there's no place for you before God or with his people, that really church is the place for happy people, so please don't come here if you're, if you're struggling. But in fact, the opposite is true, that our God is the God who 
wants every moment of our human experience to be an occasion for us to meet with Him. Our God is the God that wants every moment of our human experience to become an opportunity to meet with Him. This means we speak to Him about the very things we're going through. This means we talk to Him about all of the aches and pains in life. We said this in one of the weeks when we talked about grief. We said maybe we could say that the only quote-unquote wrong way to handle grief is to not bring it before God, is to imagine that we've got to sort of deal with it on our own. So week one, we talked about suffering in general, and week two, we talked about grief, and grief being uh, something that relates proportionately to loss, and that the longer you live in life, the chances are the more exposure you've had to losses, losses of all kinds, and so there is this sadness and this grief that comes as a result, and we talked about what to do with that. And then we talked about anguish and anxiety, and then we talked about loneliness on Family Sunday. And then, let's see, what was last week? Failure. Oh, you were listening. I did that on purpose, actually. Yeah. Last week, we talked about failure and the experience of letting others down or letting yourself down or failing cultural expectations, perhaps. Failing God, that not all failure is sin, but all sin is failure. All along the way, each of these weeks, we've said, okay, look, Part of what we're doing is we're saying, as we give voice to these experiences, we're saying, wait a minute, Jesus came and joined us in those moments, that we're not alone in these experiences. I think sometimes we imagine that God, and we are all the way down here, and that when we have these experiences, we have to say, um, God, hang on for a bit until I sort this out. Instead of realizing that in Jesus, God has come to dwell with us. That Jesus suffered with us. Jesus grieved and wept with us. Jesus carried the weight of anxiety and anguish. Jesus felt the pain of loneliness. Jesus felt the sting of failure. But all of those words really are nothing compared to the word for today. Because all of those words have to do with what other people do, or maybe other relationships, losses and loneliness. You can, you can point at other humans. But today's word is forsakenness. And forsakenness is maybe the darkest of all of these human experiences, because when we say forsakenness, we're not talking about what another person has done. We're talking about what we think God has done. And you'll notice I said that very carefully. What we think God has done, or how we feel in the moment, forsakenness. Some of you, because of the way you were raised, you struggle with even giving voice to that and saying, I feel forsaken by God. I told you the story that a few weeks ago, someone came up to me and said, you know, Glenn, sometimes I feel like there are two gods. The God that I worship on Sundays, who's always present and near, and then when I go back home into my life, there is this other God that I feel is the silent God. The God who when I pray to, I, I, don't seem to, I don't know if he's listening. To be honest, this person said, I feel like there is this other experience with God that really sounds more like forsakenness. And this person was struggling to say that because it's like, can, can we say that? Am I going to get struck? Smite me, almighty smiter. I mean, can we say this? 
without getting struck, can we say that there is a sense in which we feel forsaken? All along the way in this series, we've talked about the Psalms because the Psalms are a rich tradition of lament, giving voice to our grief. And there are soft versions of lament where we say, God, don't hide your face. But then there are the stronger versions of lament, like we heard this morning, where the psalmist just opens up, first line of the song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone sing that. Why is that not on the CCLI praise and worship charts? 104 songs have been on the top 25 praise and worship songs that, you know, these lists come out each year. 104 songs have appeared on that list over the last 25 years. Not one of them has that kind of a lyric to it. Not one of them are in a minor key. True story. It's very interesting. We don't know, we don't want to say these things. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And yet, and yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What is the psalmist doing? You see, it's because he knows that God has been faithful. That's the very reason he feels free to say, now I feel forsaken. Does this make sense? Sometimes we think, oh, if if I have faith, I will never say to God that I feel forsaken. The psalmist think the opposite. It's because they trust in this relationship that this covenant God has made with them. It's because they think your covenant promise is so strong that I'm going to tell you, I ain't seeing it, God. It's because they trust in the faithfulness of God that they feel free to protest. Petition and protest happen in the Psalms on the basis of covenant. Petition and protest happen in the Psalms on the basis of covenant. It's because they know you're our covenant God, right? So I've got got a beef with you. Protest can be a profession of faith. I want to meditate on this for a little while this morning. Protest can be a profession of faith. The protest that says, God, where are you? The two most often asked questions in the lament psalms. How long, O Lord? And why, God? Why, God? Have any of you ever felt that? Have any of you ever felt like praying and saying, how long, God? How long do I have to pray for this sickness to go away or for this person or for this child or for this? How long, God? Have any of you ever felt like you wanted to say, well, God, why, God? This sure feels like I've been forsaken. Why, God? Faith, protest can be a profession of faith, specifically in two dimensions. Faith that God is sovereign. See, you don't take your complaints up to a person that you don't think has any power to do anything. Any of you ever been on a call center helpline and you're talking to someone, you're not getting what you want, and eventually you say, can I speak to a manager? (laughs) You know, 
I, I, although I've seen this really done in an ugly way sometimes. You know, someone will go and say, can I speak? And the person will say, well, I, I am the manager. Whoops. But we do this even in life because we know unless I'm talking to the person who has the power, then my, my lament has no point. Does this make sense? So in a, ver- in, a, in a very real way, the very fact that the psalmist is addressing God is a profession of faith that God is sovereign, right? The psalmist isn't saying, hey, bro, God's forsaken us. No, that, that's, that's, like a, that's complaining in the, in the wilderness sense. You remember what the children of Israel did in the wilderness? They began to murmur and complain. You get the sense that they're whispering to each other saying, psst, why did God bring us here? This stinks. This is terrible. We got no food. When you're taking your complaints up to a person who has no power to change it, that's unhealthy. And by the way, that's true in lots of situations in life, isn't it? If you're talking to your friends about your other friends who've hurt you, that's not helpful. They don't have the power to change them. You talk to the person who has the power to change the situation. And so the very fact that the psalmist is talking to God about this feeling of forsakenness is a profession of faith. It's saying, God, I believe you're sovereign. That's why I keep talking to you about this. Think about the, 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 the paradox here of saying, my God, my God, and then why have you forsaken me? Even in his forsakenness, the psalmist can't help but address God. I, I can't escape talking to God about God because there's only God. A few weeks ago, I met a young man who was working on a film crew with this project and he was, they were surveying a number of pastors and churches about a, a subject. And, and at the end of the interview, he said, you know, i got to be honest, the, the guy working the camera, he said, I, I'm not a believer. He's like, I, I, I'm not a Christian. And he says, but I'm fascinated by Jesus. And he says, you know what's interesting? He's like, even people who don't believe in God, like, we can't stop talking about Jesus. He's like, we want to show that he didn't exist. We want to make a fragment from some time ago, make it look like he was married, you know. Read that. It's like that, that, that. We know there have there've always been non-trustworthy documents. It's, that's, not, that's not news, you know. But he's like, the, the point is we just can't stop talking about Jesus. Even people who don't believe in that Jesus is God can't stop talking about Jesus because that's just... And in a similar way, even all of us who believe, we can't stop talking to God about God even when we're complaining about God. Who else are you going to go to? There's no higher court of appeal. (laughs) So, okay, God, I'm taking it up with you then. With you is my case. I don't know if you've read or listened to the interviews by the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. His name is, it looks like it's pronounced Eli Wiesel, but it's pronounced Elie Wiesel. And years ago, he did an interview with PBS on the show called First Person Singular, And he went into these concentration camps as a little boy with his father and survived. His father did not, but he did. And in this interview, he said, I never divorced God. I couldn't. He said, I'm too Jewish. So, but I said to myself, I do believe in God, but I have the right to protest against his ways. This is a Jew brought up on the deep Jewish tradition of protest. 
And he goes on, he says, I have the right to be angry, and so I do it a lot, very often. He says, I wouldn't change a word of my discourse to God, my appeals to God, against God. And he says, because I came to a certain formulation saying that a Jew can be religious with God or against God, but not without God. He says, so I cannot live without God. This is Elie Wiesel's way of saying, even when I don't believe, it's still God I'm talking to about my unbelief. I can't escape him. So protest can be proof, a profession of faith. Faith in a God who is sovereign, but it's also faith in a God who is loving, isn't it? Because you have to believe two things about a person if you're going to take up a complaint with them. You have to believe they have the power, and you have to believe that they care. I mean, you know, the, the old joke, it's like, hey, man, here's a quarter. Call someone who cares. Like, I don't care. I got the power, but I don't care. And that could be our situation, but the very fact that the psalmist is complaining to God about God means that he believes God cares. It's a profession of faith that God is loving. It's why in all relationships, the most dangerous sign in a relationship is when you've stopped talking to one another. The most dangerous thing that parents don't want, regardless of what your children go through in life. I've, I've talked to so many parents who've said, you know what, with all the turmoil in their teenage and college years, the one thing I'm thankful for is they're still talking to me. I don't like what they're talking to me about, but thank God they're still talking to me. Because the only thing worse than all of this is that when they say, yeah, I don't, I don't think you care anymore. When a baby stops crying, that's when we worry. When a spouse stops saying to the other, you've hurt my feelings today. See, all of those conversations, we think those are difficult confrontations. I'm a non-confrontation person. Actually, some, if, if done well, confrontation is proof that you still care about the relationship. And that you believe that they still care about the relationship. Right? You don't go to a friend and say, this really hurt me if you don't think that they care. So the psalmist says, I'm taking my protest up to God because a lament of protest is a statement of faith. How about that? It's a statement of faith that God cares and that God can do something about it. It's a profession that God is both sovereign and loving. I want to read you a longer quote from Elie Wiesel. This is a bit harder. He says, I remember May 1944. I was 15 and a half, and I was thrown into a haunted universe where the story of the human adventure seemed to swing irrevocably between horror and malediction. I remember. He says, I remember because I was there with my father. I was still living with him there. He's talking about these camps. We worked together. We returned to the camp together. We stayed in the same block. We slept in the same box. We shared bread and soup. Never were we so close to one another. We talked a lot to each other, especially in the evenings, but never of death. I believed, I hoped, that I would not survive him, not even for one day. Without saying it to him, I thought I was the last of our line. 
With him our past would die, and with me our future. The moment the war ended, I believed, we all did, that anyone who survived death must bear witness. Some of us even believe that they survived in order to become witnesses. Now listen to how Elie Wiesel ties in this idea of being a witness, even to suffering, how he ties it in with the old Jewish prophet tradition. He says, but then I knew deep down that it would be impossible to communicate the entire story. Nobody can. I personally decided to wait to see during 10 years if I would be capable to find the proper words, the proper pace, the proper melody, or maybe even the proper silence to describe the ineffable. For in my tradition as a Jew, I believe that whatever we receive, we must share. When we endure an experience, the experience cannot stay with me alone. It must be opened. It must become an offering. How beautiful is that? It must be deepened and given and shared. And isn't this what we talk about with our meal groups? Blessed, broken, given. And he says, of course, I am afraid that memories suppressed could come back with a fury, which is dangerous to all human beings, not only to those who directly were participants, but to people everywhere, to the world, for everyone. Therefore, those memories that are discarded, shamed, somehow they may come back in different ways. That's true, isn't it? That if we shame our memories or discard them, they might come back in different ways, disguised, perhaps seeking another outlet. How can we therefore speak unless we believe that our words have meaning, that our words will help others to prevent my past from becoming another person's, another people's future? Yes, our stories are essential, essential to memory. I believe that the witnesses, especially the survivors, have the most important role. They can simply say in the words of the prophet, I was there. Isn't this what Jeremiah does? He warns them to repent, and then he says, it's coming. Babylon's coming. And Jeremiah gets carried off captivity with them, and the essence of his testimony and his witness is to say, I was there. What is a witness, Elie Wiesel goes on to say, if not someone who has a tale to tell and lives only with one haunting desire to tell it? Without memory, there is no culture. Think about that. Without memory, there is no culture. Without memory, there would be no civilization, no society. And then he says, and no future. And here's the last line. After all, God is God because he remembers. God is God because he remembers. This hope that they're clinging to is that in giving witness to their pain, in sharing it, in bearing witness, in saying I was there, they are also saying, and God remembers. But you know, in Jesus we see something more than that. In Jesus we see something more than God remembering we see God entering in to it. 
as rich as the Jewish tradition is of protest and relationship and God remembering and prophets and people bearing witness, as rich as that tradition is, it all comes to a fulfillment in Jesus because Jesus, in Jesus, God does not simply see and remember. God enters and redeems. God steps into the story and becomes the suffering one. Think of this. In Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God. In Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God. The big question, the cliffhanger at the end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is kind of a twofold question. Is God going to scrap his project of creation? Or is God going to abandon his promise to use Abraham's family to rescue the world? You think about this cliffhanger, you're into you know, stories and movies and series of books. The Old Testament takes, walks us to the edge of this cliffhanger and says, okay, remember how the story began with a good world in Genesis and then it all went bad and then God had a chance to destroy it with the flood. But the most remarkable thing about the flood is not that there was one, but that it didn't destroy everything. And so we have this hint that, okay, to the first part of the question, is God going to scrap his project of creation? We think no, but then he promised to use Abraham's family to rescue the world, but Abraham's family turns out that they need rescuing too. What a mess Israel is. That's the cliffhanger at the end of the Old Testament is to say, um, so the fire emergency vehicle that went to the fire has caught on fire. You're like, ah, uh, what do we do? Maybe God's got another fire truck somewhere. You know? And we imagine that Jesus kind of pops out of heaven like God saying, okay, I see none of that worked. Okay, here's this trick up my sleeve. Jesus, go. And Jesus sort of materializes on the earth. Says, here I am, smiling and blue-eyed. But the gospel writers go to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the true Israel. The gospel writers go to great lengths to show us that Jesus comes from Abraham's line. Why? Because the gospel writers want us to see that God doesn't scrap his project and God doesn't abandon his promise. God is faithful. God's not going to leave this whole world and let it go. Neither is he going to forget his promise and say, all right, let's go with a plan B. He says, you know what? I've had a plan from before the foundations of the world that from Abraham's family will come one who is strong enough to save. Because in Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God. And then we've been following this journey of Jesus to the cross. And so here we are on Palm Sunday. What a crazy day. I mean, imagine it. You have these crowds of people. They're delirious with excitement. They think this is it. Here is our king. God has come to save us. The crowd is cheering, and Jesus is weeping. I think we sort of imagine, you know, the crowd's cheering, and Jesus is like blowing kisses. Sup, sup, y'all. I'm here. <laughs> Woo! Victory! It's like a Super Bowl parade or something, you know? But the One of the Gospels tells us that the crowd's cheering and Jesus rides in and 
starts weeping. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And now you've missed the day of your visitation. Oh yes, God has come to save, but not in the way that you thought. Oh yes, God has come to save, but the way he's doing it is to take it all upon himself, to take the forsakenness of humanity upon himself. And so when Jesus on the cross cries out in a loud voice, it's really been a week of crying for Jesus. Cries on Sunday, on Palm Sunday. Cries in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweats, drops of blood. And now on the cross, crying again. This week, Holy Week, is about a weeping Jesus. A weeping Jesus. Jesus on the cross uses these words of the psalm, a psalm that very likely was used by many Jews in the hours of their death. And Jesus, knowing that he's there, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a mystery to this, and I don't pretend to understand it. That somehow Jesus is carrying our forsakenness, the forsakenness that you and I deserve. The ultimate cost of our rebellion is a separation from God. C.S. Lewis says, you know, judgment is simply God saying to you, all right, thy will be done. And so for those who've spent their whole earthly life saying to God, thy will be done, he says, great, you're going to love the future I've prepared. But for those who spent their whole life saying, my will be done, judgment is God finally saying, okay, have it then. Thy will be done. The separation from the giver of life. The mystery in all of this is the Trinity. And how is this, is, was, was, the first, was the separate, did Jesus really feel... Feel the separation? Was it? Was the Father there? Was, is it the way Paul says it in Colossians? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I don't know how this all works. But I do know it was our forsakenness that he felt. It was our forsakenness that he carried. Because Jesus, the one who was truly faithful in a way that Abraham's family and Israel could never have been. Jesus, the faithful one, becomes the forsaken one. So that in Jesus we can see the faithfulness of God. Who is this God that not only comes through as he always does, but comes through as you? And says, okay, there's two parts to this covenant I'm going to do mine, as I've always done, and I'm going to do yours. I'm going to be faithful not just as Yahweh, but as you, as the whole human race, the faithfulness of Christ. But how does it end for Jesus? Is forsakenness the last word for Jesus? Again, I think it is so significant that we remember the words of the first preachers in the book of Acts. They don't talk about Jesus throwing off the chains of death. 
They don't talk about Jesus like some Greek mythic hero who sort of breaks the chains and emerges in some sort of Hercules-like scene. They talk about Jesus as really being in the grave. And they talk about God raising him up. Why does that matter? It matters because he went all the way down. All the way down. This isn't Jesus pretending, saying, so you guys let him pick like a three-day nap. Seen a bit? No, he goes all the way down. And it's the Father who raises him up as an announcement to the world that God will never be anything but faithful. As an announcement to the world that God will never be anything but faithful. In Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God. See, Psalm 22. We know those first few verses, but do you know the rest of it? Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Do you know this verse is quoted about Jesus as well in the, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament? Jesus quotes the first verse, but as is so often with quotes of the Old Testament, you have to remember that it's like, it's like for us, like the song. I could say the first line of a song and you know the rest of the song. Jesus says the first line of Psalm 22 and, you, and everyone else is thinking, I know the rest of this. It ends pretty good. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, your yeah, verse 22 applies to Jesus. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Church, that's good news. God looked at Jesus carrying all of our afflictions and did not despise it, but says, no, this is my reconciling work. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. We have this amazingly false impression that God looks at our sin and our failure and says, eek, ooh, gotta go. When in fact, God looks at Jesus carrying the weight of all of our sin and says, yeah, come on, let's rescue this. Come on, let's, let's redeem this. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows will I perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The psalmist kind of getting ahead of himself, isn't he? Think he's catching something here? That one day every tribe and tongue will be around the throne singing worthy is the Lamb. All the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. High and low. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Church, this is exactly what happened to Jesus. God raised him up and kingship belonged to him. People from every nation are bowing down to worship. Our New Testament reading said it. We'll hear it again. 
Remember Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and descended from David, who was raised. Always remember that. Who was raised. Passive voice. Someone did the raising because Jesus actually went down. And descended from David. This is my good news. If we are disloyal, he stays faithful because he can't be anything else than what he is. In Jesus we see the faithfulness of God. What we want to remember this Palm Sunday is that as real as the feeling of forsakenness is, and as healthy as it is to give voice to that, we keep looking at this empty cross. And this empty cross says, hey, 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 there's something that this speaks over me. And what it speaks over you is that God is faithful. That God is faithful. That God's faithfulness always gets the last word. That God's faithfulness always has the day. Your forsakenness is not the way it ends. Maybe we can say that the forsakenness you feel is not truer than the faithfulness revealed in Jesus, in Christ. The forsakenness you feel is not truer than the faithfulness revealed in Christ. Can you imagine, church, living from a place of believing that, of being rooted in that, of believing that even in the valley, even in the depths, even in the lowest of the low, in Jesus, I see the faithfulness of God. In Jesus, I see the God who neither scraps his projects nor abandons his promise. In Jesus, I see the God who came and took my own forsakenness on himself. In Jesus, I see the God who did not let Jesus stay in the grave. In Jesus, I see the God who always has been and always will be faithful. In Jesus, I see the God who from generation to generation and to generations to come is the faithful one. In Jesus, I am reminded that the forsakenness I feel is not truer than the faithfulness revealed in Christ. That's powerful. Imagine living in that place. Almost every morning lately, Jonas will find me before I leave. He says, Dad, are you going to work today? Yeah, buddy, I'm going to work today. Now, on the Friday or Saturday when I'm off, and the answer is, no, I'm not. I'm home. He's, like, thrilled. You know, yeah, let's go. Let's go play soccer. Can we kick the ball? Can we do this? I'm like, buddy, it's snowing outside, you know. But on the days when I say, yeah, no, yeah, I am. I am going um, to work today, but I'll be back. It's okay, Dad. He's bummed. But he never feels forsaken all the way. He knows why. Because a funny thing happens around 5.30 each day. I come home. A funny thing happens just about every night of the week. I'm there. And so there's built up in him this trust that even when he can't see me, he knows he's never abandoned. It's not going to be a day that 
said, ah, you know, I'm, take, I'm not going to take the turn off to my street. I'm just going to keep driving. He, he knows that's not going to happen. Lord willing. But there's something much deeper than that for us. Lord, I'm not sure why this prayer isn't answered. I'm having a hard time not feeling forsaken. But I want to trust that you're the God that keeps showing up. You're the God that keeps showing up. That's what you do. That's who you are. You can never be anything but faithful. The forsakenness I feel is not truer than the faithfulness revealed in Christ. Let's pray. you take a moment and just begin to pray where you are quietly and it could be this honest prayer of saying God I do sometimes feel forsaken or forgotten but God from generations past people have put their hope in you and you always are the faithful God and let your prayer turn just like the psalmist prayer turns in Psalm 22. And let the hinge of this prayer be Jesus himself. Say, Jesus, forgive me for trusting in myself. Forgive me for trying to take matters into my own hands. Forgive me for acting like an orphan who thinks he's been forsaken Help me to live like a son and a daughter. Someone who knows they can count on the faithfulness of our Father. Someone who believes they can count on it. Take me again to the cross. Show me Jesus that I might see the faithfulness of God again and again and again.